Good evening. Today I have Chris with me. Hi, Chris. Would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm Chris Brookmeyer, uh, author of, well, possibly 26, possibly 23 novels, um, if you count the three co-written with my wife. Um, almost all crime fiction, uh, two of them science fiction, one technically science fiction, also describing all as horror, but mostly crime fiction. Did you know that you um, always wanted to write? Yeah, I did. Um, I pretty much from the age I could write sentences, I was wanting to write stories my whole life. It was kind of a weird thing, you know. It wasn't. It wasn't as if I, I'd started reading books and one day thought, "Oh, this is something I'd like to do." It was. It was a fairly early ambition. Although the, the plausibility of that ambition did kind of vary. You know, there's times in life where I just thought, when you're really young, you don't think about the plausibilities. Think, oh, I like to write books when I grow up. And then you get to your teen years and back in the 80s, you know, an era very different to, to now. You had no contact with people who wrote books, you know, like we couldn't do something like this. And so you got the impression that people who were novelists sort of were sort of spawned fully formed from the loins of Zeus, you know, or, or came down from some other planet. Uh, so the idea seemed quite outlandish, you know, even things like you wouldn't see a lot of um, bookshop signings or events back then. So there was probably a period where I thought, are you kidding yourself of being an author? Because, you know, there weren't a lot of authors I could have pointed to that said, that and say, well, they are from a background like mine or even geographically from where I was from. So, yeah, it was something I retained the ambition though you know I never and I think I was, there came a point I was very stubborn about it I stayed um, determined to get published even uh, when it, in the early days when I, I was I wrote four novels before one got published. And um, what made you take the plunge and finally go for it? Um, I don't know there was much of a plunge I mean there was, I think there's a point I was in my early 20s and you can talk about your ambitions and you, if you don't pull the trigger on them, I think you can end up very miserable um, because you, you always make excuses for not doing it. Uh, or also people maybe make excuses, we all make excuses for not doing something because we don't want to face that moment of judgment when you find out, are you kidding yourself? So um, I remember it was quite hard trying to start writing a novel when I was at that point because it's a spare time thing at that stage, you know, it's not something you can do all day, every day. Uh, and at that point, it's a wee bit harder. But I was, I think there was an element of thinking, is this what you want to do in life? And if so, you have to go in with it now, even though it's, it's hard, even though it's going to be um, weekends and evenings. Of all the books you've written so far, if you were to be transported into one as a character, which book would you choose? Ooh. <laughs> that's not, not a tempting prospect because of the awful things that tend to happen um, there's a I, I, I think I, I wouldn't mind visiting the uh, city in the sky and places in the darkness I think you know the, 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 the futuristic setting would be fun and I'd love to be able to sort of bounce around in relatively low gravity just for just for the sheer hell of it. <laughs> and uh, what made you choose the genres that you write in? 
suppose you're always just going to be drawn to the stuff that you naturally read. So, um, or not just read. Uh, I mean, growing up, the, the the books that I was most drawn to from my teen years onwards was James Bond novels and the um, Robert Ludlum in the 80s. It was a Cold War. But just, I hadn't really heard the term crime fiction at the time. You know, to me, they were, these books were thrillers. That was the word I would use was thrillers. But just sort of stories with good guys and bad guys and... Um, not so much your kind of hard-boiled or police procedural stuff, but I knew that's the stories I wanted to tell. So there was never really much question, but that's where I would go. But I actually kind of got it wrong at first because I was trying to write quite serious crime novels that um, weren't really in my natural idiom. Uh, but I thought that's what you needed to do <laughs> to get published. Uh, so I chose that simply because this was the area I, any story idea I had tended to map um, those kind of parameters, the good guys, bad guys, mystery, etc. Do you have a favourite character that you've written so far? Oh, um, that is a tricky one. Uh, it isn't Parlebane, which may surprise people because he's the one I've written about the most. I've got a problematic relationship with him. Uh, that's probably why I keep treating him so badly, but um, I it's, it's, it's tricky. Um, Millicent Spark from The Cut is a character I'm really fond of uh, because she goes on such a, a, a difficult journey. But I think the, the character that I've, I've kind of loved spending time with when, when I was writing was Zal Inez, who's a stage magician who becomes a bank robber and he uses the principles of stage illusion and misdirection to, to pull off crimes rather than violence and threat. <laughs> um, when you've been researching your books, what's the in most interesting thing you've learned? Oh, I wouldn't know where to begin with that. Um, I mean, <laughs> in fact, I feel like some of the stuff uh, with the Ambrose Parry novels, I haven't done the research, but I've learned amazing things <laughs> about the history of medicine, but it's my wife that does all of that. And, and I, in fact, I tend not to decide what I'm writing and then research it. I, I tend to just write about something that I've already got a huge interest in. So I'll write about something that I've already read lots of books about. So stage magic um, fed into several of my books because I became fascinated by the sort of craft of illusion and, and also the way that bleeds into the paranormal and claims of, of the, the supernatural. Um, so I learned amazing stuff there about how psychics and mediums pull off their frauds. Uh, just fantastic stuff and how, how um, you're never looking in the right place for the answer when it comes to the psychics and medium, because in the same way as magicians, that's how, that's how they work. They make sure you're always looking the wrong way, and that includes looking for the solution. And I used to do a, a, a psychic trick when I was um, when I was promoting Attack of the Unsinkable Rubber Ducks. Every time I did an event, I would do this psychic trick at the beginning, uh, where I would, I would give the audience cards and get them to write their name and their favorite movie. And I'd get all the cards put inside the envelopes and then put them all in a bowl and then I had this trick where I could draw the cards and tell them the name and the movie that was on it before opening it. And 
Um, it was always, it always went down really well. And then people would come up afterwards. Or my hook was, I said, to find out how that's done, you have to buy the book. Um, but when people were trying to guess, it always tickled me how wide of the mark they were. And I don't mean they were being daft. This is just the, the when you don't know how a, a magic trick is done, you aren't going to see the, the obvious solution. Uh, so that was fascinating to me. I mean, I retain such a, an admiration for stage magic. Stage magic, in fact, just if I, if I can go on about it, I mean, it's very like crime fiction. It works on the same principles um, in that you have to misdirect the, the viewer, the reader, um, and that's where the pleasure comes from. If you're the one watching, you're the one reading, is that you want to be surprised. Um, you, but it's most satisfying if the thing that surprises you was kind of right in front of your eyes all along. That's why it's uh, that's why it's it's exciting. So there's a lot of comparisons between certainly the, the way you you write a crime novel and the way magicians prepare. You know, they, they they say you don't take the stage so everything's in its place, and that's kind of the case with a crime novel. You have to know where everything's <laughs> going to be in order to misdirect the reader. Has that ruined uh, magic for you? Can you watch it still, or do you analyse to see how they're doing it? No, there's a great pleasure, actually. I mean, when I was a kid, I was frustrated watching magic because I just wanted to know how it was done. And now when I see it, most of the time, you wouldn't know how it's done. You just, I think I've got a renewed appreciation so I can marvel at the illusion without feeling a frustration about know, knowing how it's done. It, it helps to know how certain things are done, and then also it helps to tell you that whatever you think is the is the explanation is going to be miles out. So it's a, a it, it definitely didn't spoil it. Actually, enhanced stage magic for me. Awesome. <laughs> um, out of all the books you've written, what's been the most fun scene or chapter that you've written, and what's been the most difficult? Obviously, with no spoilers. Sorry, I, you went cracked up a wee bit there. What, What's the most fun scene or chapter you've written oh. and what's the most difficult, obviously, with no spoilers? Gosh, uh, the most fun scene I've written. Mm. <laughs> I, I, guess I, I try to think because it, the other comparison I draw with uh, not just stage magic is like telling a joke. You're, um, it's often because you know the punchline and you're trying to make the, the punchline as, as, as impactful as possible. So you try and um, give it a great build-up. Uh, and that's often the case with... So there's actually there's a, um, a scene in Bedlam that was great fun to write. And it was essentially a punchline that I'd had in my head for years. I wanted to write a scene that ended with this line. Um, and the line is, it's not what it looks like. Because, you know, it's used all the time, but I just thought, I want to write a scene where there is just no excusing what's going on. You know, something that, that and it, what it actually was is, is a character who he's been transformed into a cyborg and he, he doesn't actually know how to work his own arms. And he accidentally sends a spike into this guy's head. And then in his attempt to get the spike out of the head, he, he thinks he's pulled out by twisting. What that does is actually create this kind of liquidizer effect. And there's all these other soldiers come through the door while he's got his, the guy's foot on the guy's head and he's liquidizing his face. <laughs> the blood's spraying all over him and the soldiers come through the door and he turns around and he says, it's not what it looks like. So that that was a very fun scene to me. <laughs> As for the most difficult to write, um, 
I think that that's tricky in terms of spoilers because often it's scenes that involve characters undergoing something really painful or really traumatic, um, and it, it's it's there's never any fun. It's all about how do you convey this in the way that's the most sensitive or you know that's that's not crass. So it's, I, I really would struggle to think of uh, an example, unfortunately. That's okay. <laughs> Um, do you hide secret jokes or messages or Easter eggs in your books that only a few people would understand? Oh, so many. Uh, <laughs> it's just massive self-indulgence. But to me, the, the trick is to do it in a way that people who don't get the joke don't know they're missing anything. So if people pick up on the reference, uh, that's great. But you're not going to be frustrated thinking, I can see there's a reference there and I don't know what it is. So I used to put a lot of football references in um, and my wife would complain about that and they were kind of obvious, and, you know, characters specifically referring to things. Uh, so I've learned whether it's football or video games or music. Um, and actually I've managed to put, there's usually a reference to Jimmy Eat World or a Jimmy Eat World song in every book since about 2007. And that includes the Ambrose Parry books. It's just that Marissa hasn't quite spotted the quoted <laughs> reference. Otherwise, she would have taken them out. Um, if you were to be a killer in a book, how would you kill your victims? Ooh. Do you know, we asked a question, not quite the same, but in the same ballpark, Marissa and I at an event, the other day, and it's, it's a struggle to answer it, and it's also your luck to answer it, because see if I came up with a really good way of doing it, I wouldn't be telling you, I'd be saving it for the next book. <laughs> so what I'll do is I'll tell you one that was has been used already in one of my books, which was um, in A Big Boy Did It Ran Away. Uh, Simon Darcourt murders, uh, I guess his former boss, using a crossbow bolt made of ice, um, and it fires it through his eye so that the evidence melts. Yeah, it's got to be ice, hasn't it, to get away with it. <laughs> it's just got to be. It's, um, I find it interesting if I ask that question. Sometimes authors especially have the answer there. They know it straight away. And sometimes <laughs> they're like, mm. <laughs> I'm like, okay. They've, they've thought about it a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and they know exactly who it is they've got in mind as well. <laughs> yeah. Which I don't know if that's more terrifying, actually, but there we are. <laughs> um, and another question authors usually know the answer to straight off their head is, what is your most overused word or phrase that you have to edit out? Oh. Um, part of the problem is, once I'm aware of it, I won't use it anymore. Uh, I think I realised a few years ago that I would put the word just in an awful lot and that you can substitute there's like three different versions. So there's sometimes you mean simply, um, sometimes you mean uh, recent, I, mean, I can't remember the examples, but I, I, I tend to break it up or, or take out the justs. Uh, but I'm sure there's other ones that other people notice I'm using. And as soon as they tell me, I'll stop using it, but uh, you don't notice it yourself. <laughs> Just is common, very common mm -hmm. actually. <laughs> So you're not alone, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you're able to spend a day with any author, dead or alive, who would you like to spend a day with? 
Ooh, um, I'm privileged in that I've met some of the authors that I most wanted to spend time with, some of whom aren't with us anymore. Uh, I'd love to spend the day with Robertson Davies, the Canadian author, the late Canadian author, um, from, from whom I took the name Parlabane, actually, and, uh, and Simon Darkor. Uh, but just that he was just such a kind of erudite uh, and learned individual, but also very humorous. So he, he sort of wore his uh, intellectualism very lightly and he, he had a great appreciation for scatological humour allied to all this amazing knowledge. Um, and so I think he would be very interesting. I always loved the fact that when he, he was a university professor and he once set at an exam question, like final exam or a major exam question that said, uh, Eugene O'Neill's long day's journey into night is one long snot-ridden whine. Discuss. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, I first got to know you from Bloody Scotland, um, and the first time I saw you uh, was as part of the Fun Loving Crime Writers. So I want to know how you came to be part of them. And... Oh, um, <laughs> well, obviously the, the story behind the band was that at BoucherCon in 2016, I think it was, uh, three of the was Stuart, Neville, Mark Billingham and Doug Johnson were all there and they kind of got roped into performing at a sort of open mic type thing. Um, and the three of them, between them, they, they sort of bust their way through three songs, and but they went on, on YouTube uh, and made a, a, a bit of a splash. But among the people that saw it was Roland Gulliver, who programmed the Edinburgh Book Festival at the time, and he was programming the kind of late night strand. So he got into Doug, who he plays football with, and said, would you guys be interested in playing the Unbound um, strand uh, in August? And Doug said, yeah, yeah, knowing that Unbound usually has a compendium of things, but he said, okay, it's a two-hour slot, you know. <laughs> and then Doug was thinking, well, there's three of us, and we've got three songs, so they, they say to expand and actually form a band. And I, I was actually um, initially roped in. I met Doug at Granite Noir in Aberdeen, and he was telling me about all this, and he said, we're going to put a band together and play, but what we're going to do is, to, to make it a bit more of a sort of compendium event, we're going to get some... Uh, different people to come in and sing. So he said, would you sing something? I said, yeah. And, and he talks about some of the songs that might be, and one of them is Werewolves of London. Um, and I'm a huge Warren Zevon fan. In fact, my first novel, Quite Ugly One Morning, is named after a Warren Zevon song. And um, so I, I said, I'll, I'll do that, thinking that was all I was going to do. But um, as coincidence would have it, the first time the band rehearsed, uh, it was down in Liverpool and Mark and I were doing an event together in Liverpool that night. So I said, I'll come along and just to rehearse this song. Uh, and then we were doing more rehearsals as the, the event, uh, the actual gig came along, but I, I didn't want to be completely useless and I knew I was going to have to hang around rehearsals. So, and also I thought they were going to add others, other guest vocalists, but it looked like it was just going to be me. So I thought I'll, I'll work out some harmonies so that I'm not just there for one song or, or um, and I couldn't play anything at that point. But anyway, I ended up singing some harmonies as well on other tracks. And then we did a late night thing at Bloody Scotland, really late, like band went on at five to midnight. Um, and after that, I don't know, I, I kind of 
lagged my way in, I suppose. And, and by the time we rehearsed again, we rehearsed in December. By that point, I actually learned a few chords on the acoustic guitar. So <laughs> it kind of grew from there. I got a guitar for my birthday in 2017 and um, started learning from there. And I, I spend a lot of time. I'm in the attic right now. It's, it's completely, I mean, it's now... Um, full of guitars. <laughs> uh, I used to have one guitar, there's now a lot of guitars in this house, and I spend hours up here practicing guitar really badly, but it's why I'm in the attic so nobody can hear. <laughs> well, you were awesome, you were all awesome, it was great fun, so. <laughs> and poor Luca Veste, bless him, and Brittany. <laughs> <laughs> he loves it. <laughs> he must do. <laughs> and how drunk are you all on stage as well? Because you're constantly drinking. <laughs> no, actually, we, we're. Um, I think we're, we're all quite abstemious in the run up to a gig uh, because, in fact, we, we were all complaining about the fact that we, were, we weren't going on until 10 o'clock that night because that meant we all had to uh, watch our intake because you don't want to be. There's a, there's a balance because I think it probably does help to have a, a, a drink or two beforehand so that you're not super nervous but there's a, a point at which that's going to affect dexterity <laughs> and judgment <laughs> so no everybody's everybody's usually um fairly sensible Doug tells stories about how drunk he used to be on stage when he was he was in grunge band back in the 90s and he said if you're the drummer you know you pretty much you, you can go in in any state although he just convinced <laughs> he fell off the stage once uh, he was so drunk, he fell off the back of the drum kit, fell off the drum riser. Um, but he managed to climb up again and get back in time. And I think everyone just thought it was a little breakdown, you know, sometimes the drums drop out. <laughs> oh, Bretton. Because, uh, yeah, when I saw Mark the next day, I said he looked knackered. And I asked if he was hungover and he was most offended. He's like, no, I'm just tired. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, I totally forgot I was going to ask you now. Uh, don't know completely lost my train of thought so i will ask you a silly question uh who was your first celebrity crush oh um first one that leaps to mind is phoebe cates um showing that i was an 80s kid uh, and it, normally for people it was that she was in fast times at ridgemont high but i, I first saw her in uh, a really terrible 80s teen movie called Private School um, and there was just something about her that uh, I found quite beguiling. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you were to be uh, a superhero or a fictional character for a day, who would you be? Mm, for a day? No, that means the next day after there's no consequences for what you've done. Um, Gosh, you know, I, I think I'd probably go with Superman. He's the most boring superhero, but because that's because he's the most overpowered. So you can do more as Superman. You can experience more. You could probably fly to all the way around the half the galaxy and see all those things. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd have to go with that just out of sheer greed. <laughs> Fair enough. You're really too honest about it, I suppose. <laughs> And uh, if you were able to travel to any period of time, either forward or back, where would you go? Uh, I'd definitely go a few thousand years forward to see 
what we'd done, how we'd developed, uh, and what answers we'd found for things. I definitely wouldn't go backwards. I'm, I'm a great believer that life is getting better all the time compared to the past. And those Ambrose Parry novels really teach you the value of being alive in the 21st century compared to the 19th. Yeah, although the last two years, meh. <laughs> <laughs> Even that, if you think of the, the way we've the, the way we've been able to uh, operate in the midst of a pandemic compared to how we would have, even if it happened 20 years ago, you know, um, things like our communication or our, our ability to, to function and to su supply things to ourselves, all of that. So, you know, I, I definitely would want to go forward. I reckon I'd have got through more of my TBR if we didn't have technology, though. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> we, uh, we think that all of you authors should have a hiatus for one month, just not write anything, not release anything, and give us all a chance to catch up on what we need to read. But apparently that's not feasible. No, no, I, I know what you mean. I sometimes wish there was a hiatus of a month where I could just go and read. Uh, it seemed <laughs> to be I'm writing all the time. <laughs> uh, and I, I find it quite difficult at times to, to read fiction while I'm writing. Um, although it's not, not so bad at the moment, I'm kind of catching up on some of my TBR stuff. And because I've delivered a book recently, and I'm at the moment, my, Marissa and I are working on a script, and it's not as, doesn't work the same way, because for one thing, it's an adaptation, so I already know the story. So it's a lot easier to, to relax by reading someone else's book. But it's far more difficult. If you're writing prose, you're writing a novel, you don't want someone else's sort of narrative style in your head in between times. Yeah, I've had that a lot, actually. So, yeah, I get that. Um, since you started writing, what's been your favourite standout moment? Since I started writing? Um, I think that the... The first time I actually got uh, a deal um, when I realised it was going to be published, that was an amazing moment. You know, that, that felt like the, the sum of a lot of ambitions. And, and But actually, that, that was just the beginning. Um, you don't realise that at the time. Uh, and so I suppose, for me, one of the, the perhaps the standout moment, because it's, it's something I never thought would be possible, is standing on stage at Glastonbury with the Fun Loving Crime Writers. And thinking that, you know, two years before, uh, I, I couldn't play a chord and I'd never have, literally wouldn't have dreamt of this. You know, it wasn't even the kind of ambition. There's a point when you're a kid and you think, I'd love to be a rock star. But then you, you, you rationalise, you know, and you start thinking of what you can do. And you kind of let go of some of your dreams so that you can concentrate on making other ones reality. Um, and the weird thing about that is not a literary um, moment just, although it was obviously as the fun loving train writers, but it's it's that it was the weirdest fringe benefit of um, my day job. So it, it remains probably the great highlight. Will anything ever beat that? Um, who knows? I mean, that, that, if there's one thing that that, that has taught me, that and a, a lot of things with the band is that. Um, you would be amazed what's possible, you know, or, or don't ever think something's not going to happen, you know, if you're open to opportunities. And also, if you're totally fearless about the possibility of humiliating yourself, you know, I think that's a very important element of this. There's a lot of great experiences I've had down the years um, that 
they were great uh, once I got there, but there was a lot of fear in the run-up because of the potential of, of making an arse of yourself. I mean, things like uh, I did stand-up comedy at the comedy store in London. I was roped into that by Mark Billingham for a, a book trade benevolent trust night. And I was, again, I should have been more scared of the run-up run up to that. But, um, and, and there's lots of things I've, I've done that I was terrified. Um, but I thought it's better to even run the risk of, of this being a disaster, but having a go at it, than to decide you're not going to crack, have a crack at it at all. I think you'll you end up regretting, a great believer in that phrase that we most regret the things we don't do. Is there evidence of this um, night at the comedy store? Is there a video? Yes, I've, I've still got a, a DVD of my set, and actually the, the publishers had a, a DVD of the whole night because it was Little Brown um, that organised it. Uh, and there was uh, a video of the whole night, I mean, it was back in December 2005, so it's you know, very much lost to the mists of time. <laughs> oh, not if there's a DVD. <laughs> 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 if there's evidence, that's good. As long as it wasn't pre-technology, that's cool. It can always appear again. Yeah, the main thing, I mean, I, I went down all right. The main thing I'm concerned about is I don't want ever to see me in the kind of weird brown corduroy suit that I was wearing that night, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it looked, looked presentable and I think someone said I just looked like a geography teacher. <laughs> yeah, it sounds very geography teacher. <laughs> oh dear, I can't even picture that. Um, a question I usually ask is, do you have lots of author friends, which you clearly do? Um, so um, do you hear a lot from your readers? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I always have done, but what's been interesting is the way that's evolved, because back when I was first published, the way to hear from your readers, apart from at events, was only by email, uh, but, and they would have to write to the publishers, and then that would be passed on. Uh, so that was a kind of, that, that was the, the kind of real steam days of, of, um, of um, mostly fan mail, but you still got the pernickety letters back then where people writing to you to tell you that they thought you got something wrong. And then when uh, really in the early, late 90s, um, I, I first set up a, a, a website on my own and also the, then the publisher starts to do that and you start to get emails of people talking or asking questions about your books. But now in the social media era and people can say whatever they want on Twitter and I, I usually will see it. So um, it's quite direct and quite open, and it's it's helpful, obviously, because um, I don't. It really helps to be male. I don't get an awful lot of abuse on Twitter, um, which surprises me because I can be quite mouthy uh, about certain subjects. But I guess I'm just largely followed by people that are predominantly in agreement with what I've got to say. <laughs> Being a male crime writer, have you had any weird females following you or asking for anything? Eh, no, no. <laughs> uh, I've, I've had weird males, you know, weird like, guys coming up after an event and saying, I've got a great idea for a, a book, can I tell you? You know, um, I've had emails to that effect as well. Uh, and that's, it's, it's, that's always, obviously it's awkward, but it's, I thought there was a really good thread on Twitter yesterday where there was a, a writer saying, here's why this is a terrible thing to do. And, and he was explaining that 
you have ideas all the time and or, or you, your job as a writer is to take the things that you see or hear and re react to them and create new things and so if someone explains their idea to you um and it goes in one ear out the other but you know if, if in two years five years time you come up with something that sounds faintly like that they're going to think you've ripped it ripped it off and it's just not how it works but you definitely don't want to hear someone else's great pitch for a book <laughs> especially when it's, you know, someone else's great pitch for a book that you should write you know which i've had several times I suppose there's a little bit of a compliment in there, maybe. Oh, certainly. I mean, there's, there's the sense that they think, well, you could tell the story better than I could. That's often what's said. And it's well, yeah, but it has to, the impetus has to come from me. It has to be my story. Because I also, <laughs> I saw your uh, Killer Bees um, panel. So I know some of the, the weird <laughs> messages and emails you both get. And uh, yeah, just mad. So I just wondered if there's any like really crazy people, because you know, crazy people are everywhere. <laughs> yeah, um, mostly I, I very seldom get ones that I'm genuinely disturbed by. You know, sometimes I'm, I'm amused, and sometimes I'm I'm, uh, I'm tickled by the, the the sheer candor that some people will indulge in. You, know, you think. You should really have thought that through before you hit send, you know, but everybody's different in terms of their, their filter and also people can send emails late at night after a lot of wine. So, um, but mostly I'd say people have written to me with, mostly with a degree of affection for my work. So, and even, even some of the more crazy ones, they're only getting in touch because something I said connected with them and made them feel like I was someone who would understand. <laughs> That's quite sweet, I suppose, <laughs> in a way. As long as you've got no stalkers or anything, although apparently you only make it when you've got a stalk. <laughs> <laughs> um, are you doing many uh, events next year? Uh, yeah, I think it's starting to, the calendar is starting to populate, and the really nice thing is that you're looking at the calendar getting busier rather than that horrible period in 2020 where it's just all about coming up to an event, oh, that's off, that's off, that's off. Um, so, yeah, there's a few things coming up. Um, some of them are, are kind of tentative at this stage, but there's more and more getting confirmed. So um, I'm really looking forward to, as the winter starts to draw into what we'll be doing next spring. Awesome. Hopefully I'll actually get to, well, meet you properly, although I did kind of see you this year. <laughs> <laughs> Although, uh, yeah, you were busy, so. Well, maybe um, <laughs> this time, next time we see a, a, an event or something, I won't, there won't be a perspex screen, you know, uh, between the, the, the reader there, and the writer. There was a screen in front of you, and then I just stood at the side anyway where there was no screen, so I don't really get the point of those things. <laughs> like, oh, the virus is not going to go round the corner. <laughs> they just made me laugh. <laughs> I leave Scotland cost me a fortune. Broke. <laughs> I think I bought nine, nine books that weekend. Gosh. <laughs> cost me like two hundred pounds to get up there on the train, so I live miles down south. Oh, right. Yeah, that's fine. That's cool. I was never going to get a chance to read them, but <laughs> I will next time I see you. I'll, I would have read your book. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> 
want to see crazy TBRs. Um, I'm going to ask you some silly quick fire questions and then we nearly finished. You might be relieved to know. <laughs> so um, no thinking, just answer. Uh, tea or coffee? Coffee. Full English or continental? Drunk Scottish. <laughs> oh, I tried haggis when I was in Scotland. Ugh, gross. That pudding, however, was fine. Um, fish and chips or roast dinner? Fish and chips. Holiday UK or abroad? Abroad. God, yeah, after all this time. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Sun, I want to see sun. Um, summer or winter? Summer. Uh, why France or boxes? <laughs> why France? <laughs> Uh, Diana Ross or Beyonce? Diana Ross. Uh, Stephen King or William Shakespeare? William Shakespeare. Uh, book or Kindle? Book. Film or documentary? Film. Cat or dog? Dog. Chocolate or sweets? Chocolate. That's it. That's all the short. <laughs> I'm probably testing you today. Yeah, some kind of psychometric analysis that you're never going to be able to tell me what your answer means. That's me. I can't tell you nothing. <laughs> my my brain is shot, so I wouldn't be able to help you at all. <laughs> um, so you said you're working on a screenplay at the moment, and then do you know what's coming next after that for you? Uh, yeah, I do. I mean, I've just delivered my next solo book, and after the script, um, Marissa and I are working on the next Ambrose Parry novel, which we're waiting to deliver by, I think, August. Well, you may be relieved to know I don't have any more questions for you, unless you think there's anything I haven't asked you about that you want to tell us. No, I've covered a very eclectic mix of subjects. <laughs> I'd like to keep you lot on your toes. I'm not asking you the same boring old questions. No, no, for sure. <laughs> so would you like to tell everyone where they can find out more about you if they wish and where they can get your books from? Uh, get the books in lots of independent bookshops and uh, Waterstones. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, uh, at cbrookmeyer, and there's also a publisher's website, which is brookmeyer.co.uk. Fabulous. Well, thank you very much. Cheers. It's been a lot of fun, Donna. <laughs> <laughs>